The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 42, chapter 40, last chapter, verses 33 through 38. Jonathan, you breathe a sigh of relief. There is no chapter 42. Uh, if you have a Bible that's under the chairs, it's going to be on page 52. It's going to be on the, also on the screen behind me. You can read along with us. Exodus 40, verses 33 through 38. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gates of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, Exodus chapter 42 had me sweating quick. 42, I didn't know there was a 42. Uh, So uh, let me me pray, we will will get moving. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for... um, the opportunity to, to um, march through a book of your word, to see the big picture, to be able to step back and to see um, the majesty of your hand upon a group of people that you called to be your own. That in this picture, you, you, you illustrate to us how we are with you today and uh, how the fulfillment of the coming of your son was planned from the beginning of time. We, uh, we just thank you so much for the freedom we have to come here this morning, for the provision that backs it, um, for the simple, um, for so many simple good things you've placed uh, before us this day. Um, I pray this morning it would bring honor and glory to you. Pray that you open our hearts, our minds, our ears, um, that we could hear, that we could receive, that we could know, and that then we could rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was going to uh, caption this lecture Lectures, teaching, uh, what's in your cloud? I was like, no, that's a salvation message. That one doesn't work. So it's not what's in your cloud. It's uh, where is your cloud going is, is, is the caption to this one. And hopefully that'll kind of settle in um, by the end of this morning to, to be a real question, to ask ourselves um, about this picture of this cloud um, that God used to direct his people and, and how that's really true for us today. Um, so I, I would ask this question in the morn, this morning, what, what is the hardest, one of the hardest aspects of life? Um, one of the things that brought me to my salvation was that I had been engaged and woke up one day and realized this ain't what I wanted. And I got to be honest, when you meet somebody at first and you say, oh, they're misright and later they're not, you start sweating. Um, so... It was a, a series of things that came into play in my life that left me really um, shaken 
at the core, the foundation of who I am, that if you can't make this decision, how are you ever going to make any good decisions the rest of your life? How are you going to know some of these other um, decisions to make are going to be the right ones? And, and as we get older, you start to see that your, your decisions not only affect yourself, but can affect those you love and, and those in your immediate circles, and sometimes really um, tragically when bad decisions are made. So how do we know what du- direction um, to take with, with our lives? And, and I'm going to ask just a handful of questions. You know, what, as, as we're growing in various different places here this morning, you know, how do we answer the question, what school should I go to? You know, I, I wrote down here in my notes, it's really, and, and I'm so grateful that I got saved at 23 because a lot of these big decisions I could experience and let God go before me. That's why I put in my parentheses, I got accepted to one out of six graduate schools. That makes it easy, right? You know, only one, you'll go there. Okay, well, that's easy for me. How should I know what to study? Uh, how, How do I know what job to take? Should I buy this home? Can I afford this home? You know, and sometimes when you bite off more than you chew, and it's a perfect picture in life, when you have little children and they bite off more than they chew and you see that and you go, oh my gosh, I did that with my mortgage, or I did that with my student note, or I did that with dot, dot, dot. But it's pretty humorous when you see that kid with so much food in his mouth. And I used to say to my oldest all the time, what goes, in, what goes on your fork should fit in your mouth and should be able to slide down your throat. Okay, just simple, simple facts here. And, and it's so funny because especially the problem is, is when they put meat in their mouth, it's not going down the chute, you know. They're gagging on this stuff. So, you know, should I buy this house? Can I afford this house? Should I marry this person? Should I have kids? You know, and that's a fair question. My wife and I, after you have four, four kids, you look around and you're sitting out for, at a restaurant, you go, they shouldn't have had kids. I mean, that's a horrifying thought. To think, they didn't think that one through. You know, as the kid's throwing food, hitting the table next to him, you're like, this is a problem. Uh, should we have kids? If so, maybe how many? It's, uh, we got some couples in the church. I look at me, you having more? And they look at me like, I'm not sure. Um, it's a challenge. And we always joke, the third is the hardest. So if you've gotten over the hump with three, go ahead and have more. You're cool. It's, it's a good decision as far as I'm concerned. So should we have kids? How many? Where should I invest? Now, this is an easy question here at Doxa. It's, it's either with David or Justin. Now, the hard decision is which one, right? So we'll go there. You don't know. They both are investment brokers. Should I, where should I serve in my church? Now, if you're perplexed on this question, I'd like you to do one thing. Present the body warm to Randy, and we'll work it out from there. Just trust us on that one. So sometimes it's not even the decision to make, but it's the fear of making the decision. What if I make a bad decision? And how many of us in life stop dead in our tracks because we can't make a decision and won't? And then we wind up in something called a rut. And you can tell if you've been in a rut for a period of time because you start decorating your rut. And just because you have a happy and a comfortable and a pleasant-looking rut does not mean this is where God wants you to be. Just a heads up there. So having said that, um, there's one other group of people that I have to address, and and I fall into this category. Now, if I make a decision, I'm going to be confident about it. So my position is if I'm dead wrong, at least I'm confident about it, right? But does being confident about a bad decision help you with having made a bad decision? And I'll give you the answer. Not not in the least. So, So with that, 
with that, we sometimes will encounter people, and, and this is, I think, really it's kind of a, a provision from God, will encounter people, godly counsel. But that's not always a guarantee that these people will be around. I, I have this little placard about my dad, and it reads this, four years old, my dad can do anything. Seven years old, my dad knows a lot, a whole lot. Eight years old, my father doesn't know quite everything. Twelve years old, oh, well, naturally, father doesn't know that either. Fourteen years old, father, hopelessly old-fashioned. Twenty-one years old, oh, this man is out of date. What do you expect? Thirty years old, maybe we ought to find out what dad thinks. Fifty years old, I wonder what dad would have thought about it. He was pretty smart. 60 years old, my dad knew absolutely everything. And at 65, it says, I'd give anything if dad were here so I could talk it over with him. And you know, even, even the people we love, those we seek refuge in, comes a time where they're no longer here. And that's a reality. It's a painful reality. So where do we go? How do we make good decisions? How do we find the right guidance in life? So just a thought to kind of set the stage going into this. Um, Exodus, I, I hope you, one of the blessings of Doxa, one of the things that brought me to Doxa, selling points, was that we'll start a book of the Bible and we'll march through it. And I think what we receive in that gives us big chunks of truth concerning who God is, the big picture. And I, and I hope that as we've studied Exodus this year, we've seen a picture of the person of Christ, a picture of his, his relationship with us in what's going on in our lives today. So we started, I'm going to just do a little recap. We, we see God, how he preserves Moses' life as an infant, how, how his salvation is found in that ark placed in the Nile. Have we seen how God has raised, raised Moses up in Pharaoh's court? How Moses, sensing God's call to deliver his people, took matters into his own hands, and we know how that turned out poorly with a 40-year exile. And we see how God, <coughs> excuse me, in the... Uh, in the 40 years, now you're probably going to have a much better thing on the mic now, right? I just realized that. Pull the thing out. It's got a little retractor here. This is much better than the old mic, by the way. That's all I'm going to say for those of you who saw the mic dangling off my head four weeks ago. So we see how God delivered his, how as Moses sought to deliver his people, his own willpower resulted in 40 years of exile in the desert. And what God did to Moses in the desert. We saw how God came to Moses and spoke to him out of a burning bush, how God equipped Moses to lead his people from under Pharaoh's bondage, how God brought judgment upon Egypt for the defiance and not letting God's people go, how the judgment culminated in God striking down the firstborn of all who refused to place the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, how Pharaoh then let the Hebrews go, not only to, to, how, how Pharaoh not only let the Hebrews go, but then would pursue them out into the desert. And just as it looked like if there were no hope for the Hebrews, God parts the Red Sea and provides an escape for his people. And how God casts final judgment over Pharaoh's pursuing army by burying them in the same sea. You know, so if that's not enough to say we have a mighty God going before us, then you find within three days, within three days, the people are in the desert and they're grumbling. No water. And how there's a piece, I, the sim, symbolic uh, picture of that wood to me really was interesting. Um, how throwing the wood into the water purified the water. 
They grumble about food, God sends quail. They grumble about watering, they strike the rock. And then there's that defeat of the Amalekites where Moses holds up his hands and as he's holding up his hands, there's victory. And as he gets tired and his arms start to go down by his side, the Amalekites start winning and how they hold his arms up in victory. That's just a great picture to me of how in our own strength, we can't win the battle. But if you have three godly brothers around you who are part of this mission and part of this ministry, and they come alongside of you, you see how God allows victory with the body of Christ. It's, there's no Rambo Christianity. I don't think there's been Rambo Christianity since John the Baptist, but even John had a community. So we see Moses' father show up in the desert. Jethro advises him to appoint some elders or judges to assume more burdens. And therein lies the establishment of the future Sanhedrin. I'm not sure if that was, to this day, I'm still not sure that's biblical wisdom. Somebody will probably correct me down the road if this is actually put put up on the internet. Uh, So I'll get an email a month from now. It's wisdom, trust me, and here's the proof. But uh, the Sanhedrin was the one who turned the group, the ruling group. That turned on Jesus in the end. They were, they were the ones that, um, that uh, went after Christ with a vengeance. God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai, the first of multiple appearances. God gives Moses the moral law, the Ten Commandments, along with the civil laws to establish the stability in their society. Then God confirms his covenant with the Hebrews. We have chapters 25 through 31 that give the directions for, for the construction of the tent of meetings, the articles to be used in the sacrificial ceremonies, the priestly garments, the details of observing the Sabbath, and the persons designated to craft all the articles. But at this point, nothing was done, nothing was acted upon to, um, to, to um, make these articles, to, to create the tent of meeting. And then there's the golden calf incident. And to this day, I still, I still am in disbelief that Aaron tells Moses, I threw the gold into the fire and out jumped a calf. I just make something better up. Do, do something better than that. I just, you know, there, there, there are outside commentaries on Scripture. And one of the things they say that lend credibility to the Scripture is that you would never publish things that are derogatory or demeaning or humiliating about these individuals. If, if you were going to promote something you wanted the world to see, you, you'd dot every I and cross every T, and there wouldn't be these times where you see these complete human failings in, in, the, in this nation of people. And, and so they say sometimes when you see these types of stories, you say, oh, it must be legitimate because it paints a picture accurately of human beings who act apart from God's grace. So... As a consequence of this, and you know, this year it really it sunk in with me that there were three different consequences, probably more in, in all truthfulness, to this act of idolatry. And it tells you how God responds to idolatry, to placing greater value and significance to some, some object, some item, some person, some thing. Great, uh, the idolatry is simply to, create, to place greater significance on that than God. And so the, the consequence is Moses first has to intercede before God says, I'll just wipe them all off the face of the earth and we'll start over from scratch with you. And Moses intercedes. Yet we had 3,000 who worshipped the calf were slaughtered by the Levites that day. God additionally sends a plague upon the people and God says to Moses, I'm not going with you. Can't go with you. And Moses again pleads and begs and intercedes on behalf of the people. 
God relents. God relents. And, and, and Moses requests to behold God's glory and is given new stone tablets. Moses is seen as reflecting the face of God, a, 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 a radiant face Moses um, is given, and, and he wears a veil unless he's going in to um, spend time in the presence of God. And then in chapters 36 through 40 is basically an explanation of the directions given being implemented, where they previously had directions, now we hear the actual implementation of creating and, and making these items um, concerning the tent of worship and all of the items associated with that. Uh, chapter 40, not 42, thank God, opens up verse 1. Then Moses, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. It's interesting how timing plays here. This is exactly one date, one year from the date of their exodus from Egypt and nine months from arriving at Mount Sinai. And then we have verses 3 through 15 and then 17 through 33. Again, is a recitation of the actions taken for erecting the temple, from preparing all of the articles for the temple worship and dressing and presenting Aaron and his sons as the priests. Um, Exodus 40, uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, reads, This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And so the question at this point, they put the tabernacle up, and the question that I ask is, did anyone have a clue what was going to take place at that moment? And I, and I would submit no. I, I don't think anyone saw the truck coming, and it was a big truck. Maybe this is what God meant when he declared in Exodus 34, verse 10, before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. And so we read in verse 34 of chapter 40, it says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of, and the, excuse me, and the, glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we had a history of God's presence, of his glory, of a cloud appearing on the top of the mountain. But imagine, this is a little tent. When, when we taught on the Ark of the Covenant, it's this little rickety tent. And if you remember, I did a picture of a baseball field with this little tent. And now, when I first read this, I thought, well, kind of like a misty, hazy cloud comes over the temple. And, and kind of like a, a dim light shines from it. And then I thought, no, no, Jonathan, I think you have it wrong. Have you ever seen a cloud formation where it leaves you in complete awe? I was just looking online at, at some weather in Texas. And if you've ever seen, like, as they do time-lapse photography, where you see cloud formations, then all of a sudden it becomes this majestic presentation of this white puffy thing. Maybe a little lightning coming out of it, but you see these clouds, and it becomes an amazing thing to behold. And now, place within that cloud a blinding light. You know, I always think about, is there a correlation between the sun and the sun? With the fact that you can look at the sun, but not for, you can see the sun, you derive warmth from the sun, it does everything, our existence hinges upon the existence of the sun. S-O-N. 
And then you think about Christ. Excuse me, S-U-N. Getting backwards there. You know, I'm going to make a confession this morning. I put my underwear on backwards this morning. So if I have anything else that's backwards, I go to the bathroom and I'm like, what's up with this? I knew something was wrong. All right, so if I say S-U-N and I mean S-O-N, it's okay. That's the day I'm having. So T-M-I, I know that's too much, but you got it, okay? So if you're sleeping, you're awake, and I'm glad. So, so pay attention to the rest of what I have to say. I've never done that before, by the way. I mean, maybe quickly, and you go, whoa, this doesn't work. But today, I left the house. So, so we're back to the sun and the sun. All right. So, our existence hinges upon the S-U-N. And then you think of the S-O-N. And is it any different at all? I've been studying Revelation, and when it talks about the appearance of Christ in his glorified state, you drop. You drop. This is an immediate awareness of the majesty, of the holiness, of the enormity, of the power of God manifest. And you ever look at a mountain off in the distance, and you see it's majestic. Pull the cloud from the top of the mountain and drop it in your backyard, and you will shake. You will tremble. You will have a sense of reverence for the holiness of God. And that's what dropped into the neighborhood here. If you were here a few weeks ago and we taught on the Ark of the Covenant, we know that God's presence and his glory would ultimately reside um, in, in between the two angels on the mercy seat. So this glory would change. Now this glory is in the temple, just this blinding, shrouded light within a cloud. You know, and again, I think hazy, undefined perimeters with the cloud, and I think it was a very well-defined, perfectly white cloud. Have you ever seen white? When you see a good cloud that's white, It's white, nothing else. Snow is the closest thing to a white puffy cloud. But you've got that type of a cloud here. And then by night, this pillar of fire over it. We know that ultimately that glory will be more localized, dwelling within the Holy of Holies. Uh, It will move out from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple, illuminating the whole courtyard. And then it will move from the east gate and be surrounded by real cherubim. And finally, it will depart altogether and move from the Mount of Olives. I believe that sometime probably uh, during the Babylonian exile um, where that will take place. I might be wrong on that because I didn't put it in my notes. So this glory ultimately will depart the dwelling of God with man. And we'll enter a period of what I call deafening silence that starts from Malachi forward, which is 400 years prior to the coming of Christ. This deafening silence of God no longer residing with us. Can you imagine if the history of America is that God resided visibly with America over Washington, D.C.? Magnify it a few times. And that we live as a nation collectively with this glory, with this presence of God. Think about the people that would come and visit the nation and what they would think about coming to this place where you say, my God resides, and then you see the glory and the majesty of God. Well, let's not upset America. You know, they may have an arsenal, but they have God on their side. Don't monkey with them. 
And then all of a sudden, this God, this presence departs. In Matthew 3.23, it says, A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he is returned with us. Uh, John 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The returning of the presence of God, not as a cloud to dwell with man, but in the flesh to dwell with man. In Matthew 16, 16, Peter would declare uh, Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God. Yet we know that Christ again left and has departed in Acts chapter 1.9. We read that when he, Jesus, said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up. I love this. And a cloud took him out of their sight. You know when he returns physically? You know, how, you know, you know what his chariot looks like? It's a cloud. Cloud. I once in a while look out when you see the clouds, and I think of this often. Mary did a cool post uh, on, on social media. There was a rainbow. It, you know, I saw that. And it said he still, he still keeps his word with the rainbow. What are the things where we see in our lives today the glory and the presence of God? What are things in nature that allow us to say, I have a hope in his return? And when I see a majestic skyline or you see the sun coming through the clouds, I think, is he coming? Is that him? You know, I, I'm looking forward to a physical return. There's a place in Isaiah where it says that, that he shall be vindicated, meaning I get to say to an unsaved world, I told you so. I, I, I look forward to that day. Saying, yeah, I told you he was coming. Yeah, part of his government, by the way. So, so Jesus leaves in Acts 1.9. And knowing that he left, he promised his Holy Spirit would come in place. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. Not only will the Holy Spirit guide us, John 14, 26 tells us that he will teach us and bring to remembrance all that Jesus has spoken to us. 2 Timothy 1, 7 tells us that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, just as God led his people... By a cloud in the day and pillar of fire by night, just as Christ led his 12 disciples, so today, through the power of his Holy Spirit, God leads us. And I have a principle I'm going to give it to you. I'll give it to you two times. Just a statement of truth. I'd like you to walk away to hang your hat on something. And this is the simple principle. It says this, God leads all men who truly acknowledge his son. God leads all men who truly acknowledge his son. And really, that's the answer to my question to you this morning. Is that in Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, we are led. We are given guidance that is tangible, that is real, and that's applicable the moment I step my foot out of the bed in the morning. That I have, I can have a firm confidence that God is present, that God is active, God is engaging, God is here now. And God is guiding and inspiring every act of living, great or small, in our lives today. 
Psalm 23, two through three says this, he leads me beside still waters. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Isaiah 48, 17, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. John 10, three, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by the name and leads them out. Psalm 119, 133. I didn't know any book of the Bible had 133 verses in it, but it's got more than that. I knew it had a lot. Direct my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Proverbs 16, 9. A man's man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So for us today, where are we needing the Lord to lead? And what part of our lives do we need his direction? And again, I ask this because if we walk out of here and we don't have a tangible God that goes before us, that leads, that guides and directs, when I get up tomorrow morning, this is pointless. Because I don't think, if he's not manifest in what happens Monday morning as a result of Sunday morning, this thing is an inconsistent farce. It is a fruitless endeavor that has no significance. Because if I can't take what I hear and use it tomorrow, I'm in a world of hot water. Because the world out there has their plans, has their schemes, has their ways, has their agenda, and I've got to go in it. So is God a part of the the business decisions? Is, Is there something you're trying to do right now? My partner came to me two months ago. I'm done this year. And I've just been praying at this point, God, I want your hand to orchestrate the circumstances of this transition. And I want it to be so clear that only you will get the glory and the credit. That's my prayer in this situation. Have your hand. I don't want to go. If if he doesn't go before me, I'd rather be in the unemployment line than place myself in an environment that doesn't have the provision and hand of God behind it, in it, and around it. What about a decision concerning how to better love or train one of our children? Maybe we need wisdom in an area of life where there's a real sin problem. And I suspect we're all here. Maybe there's something going on with prescription medication, spending, uh, alcohol use, pornography, a control issue, a pride issue, a belligerence, a stoniness, and a hardness of our heart toward a particular person. We've got to say no more. See, it, it... The problem is if you have a little bit of poison in the well, it poisons how much of the well? See, I can't be filled with bitterness and love my wife the way Christ loves me, even if I'm ticked off at somebody else. My effectiveness within the body of Christ hinges upon all the other areas of my life being in alignment with God. And the truth of the matter is is I play spiritual whack-a-mole with myself and sin. You know, you ever go to the little whack-a-mole, that game, you know, you smack one down, two others pop up, you smack those two down, another one pops up, I start praying over this one, and another one pops up over there. And I'm like, God, wait, I haven't gotten out of bed this morning. You know, I'm going to need some help today. And the good news is, is that, you know, I look at sin and I ask myself a lot of questions about that. You know, why do you allow us to, be, to, to live in a place that you know it is going to have toxic effects on who I am? Yet you call me to be a holy, blameless creation set apart to bring you glory and honor and bear witness to who you are. 
Yet at the same time, I find myself knowing what's truly in my heart, crawling to the foot of the cross, just saying, forgive me. Just just let me stay here, and that's enough. And it seems that at those moments, some amazing things start to happen. So, So sin to me, on one hand, is a horror It's a mutiny, it's the treason against God and his kingdom, and on the other hand, it's the only thing that gets me real about who I am and back to the foot of the cross. If I go through a great day and I don't see this present conviction of sin in my life, I go, oh, you're doing okay today, Jonathan, which is heresy. Because I'm not the one doing it if it's happening. So if I'm patting myself, I'm patting the wrong person. Maybe we're dealing with the, we need guidance and, and a lead in, in, in a direction where there's forgiveness of a parent, maybe a spouse, maybe a friend. Maybe there's real bitterness backed up between you and your spouse. Maybe it's a decision to let God have his way with you in serving others versus serving yourself. Maybe we need wisdom in letting someone go who doesn't belong in our life. And maybe you're here this morning saying, I don't have any of this, but I hear him calling, come. I hear him calling, come. You know, if you're here today and you hear those words, just come. Just come. What a... I wish... One of the things when I get to heaven... I'm going to want, I'm going to pull Christ aside and say, I need you to walk me through some things, this salvation experience of how you really do this deal with me. Like what part started moving, when it started moving, how you convicted, how you moved, how you gave me a willingness, how you opened my eyes, how you said come, and did I have any role in this to start with? Yet knowing that in some mysterious way, he says come. And he's calling you to come. You don't have to understand a word I just said. If you are convicted of your sin this morning and know you're in trouble with God, come. Love the, all you are weary and heavy laden. If you're at a place where you know you can't do this anymore on your own, just come. Just come. You don't need to understand. It's good to understand God's word, but you don't. If this book gets burned and we never saw it again, it wouldn't change the nature, the holiness, the majesty of who our God is and of his ability to intervene in a human life, to redeem, to restore, to minister, to guide, to lead, to direct, to inspire, and to bring him glory. These are just written words. If he's calling you to come this morning, just come. When we do communion, people are around here to pray. Go, I don't know him, but I need to. Pray with me. Pray this moment. I want to know you. Now, if you've come to this place where you're going to say, okay, I'll be real. I'll yield. I'll let you guide me. I'll let you have your way with me. I'm going to give you a heads up. It's scary, and it's exhilarating. And it's scary first because he never tells you where you're going. Did any of the Israelites, when the cloud picked up, later on in Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, when the cloud starts moving, hey, wait, 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 I need to know where you're going. Anyone ever get the memo on that? No. When God goes, you're either with him or staring at his back, okay? 
And that's a little disconcerting because for us, I want to know where I'm going. I want to see, I come to God and say, yeah, I'll serve you, but I only have two fish and five loaves. When you step forward to serve him and you clean up after the meal and there's 12 baskets, that'll blow your mind. That'll leave you confident you're serving the right God, that's for sure. God has no time schedule. Well, how long do I do this for? Crickets. That's what I, when I ask God questions, most of the time, that's what I hear, crickets. Just crickets. Chirp, chirp, chirp. Well, did you hear me, God? And the fact that there's crickets confirms to me he's heard me. You know, God sometimes will only say something once. Maybe in his mercy he'll say it many times, which I hope is the case with most of us. But when he says something once and you keep walking, know, know that, that part of the holiness of God was just forfeit here on earth. That someone receives less than what God had intended. And how often will God take us out of our comfort zones? And that's not nice. I, I, I don't want to leave my comfort zone. But if he leads you, there will be a peace. And there will be baskets of scraps you, you clean up after the, the endeavor. It will not make sense to you, and it doesn't have to. But there will be a joy. I had a text this week with somebody. The joy is found in feeding his sheep. The joy is in giving. The joy is not in receiving. There, there's, a, there's a blessing in receiving. But when you give and you walk away and you know that, that you've been the instrument of a holy God, that's more than enough. When you really know that. That me, a broken, leaky, sinful vessel, has been used to cleanse, to nourish, to wash, to bless, to encourage, to lift up, to edify. When we look back, if we get this deal, that if we say, I will go, but you must go before me, that I will lead, and you will, or, or, or that as you lead, I will follow, the world becomes a different place. From a rotting, treacherous, sin-riddled, toxic dump comes to a place where you see the beauty of the Lord manifest in everything where you see the goodness of his presence in people, in circumstance, in things. You can go through your day, not for a moment thinking, what a toxic waste dump, and I look forward to the day the place burns. See, I have those days. I don't want to keep having those days. I want to have a day that I say, the glory of the Lord is my strength. I love nature because it's where I see the majesty of who he is. It reminds me of a return. It reminds me of his provision. It reminds me of his goodness and of his favor, of his intimacy that I can go out into my backyard with a garden and pick something. We were out to dinner this week, and we were praying, and somebody came up and said, I'd love to see it. And, I, and in my heart, I thought, well, you didn't cook the food. He did. You know, if his provision wasn't here, there'd be nothing on my plate. But what a joy to know and to receive that. And I'll give you a secret. Food tastes better when you know where it comes from. Has God made the direction for your life clear to the point that you are confident in where you're going? Or are you in the middle of a spiritual desert looking for the pillar cloud? Is the direction of your life being determined by God's providential order or your own decisions? Are you torn between following a cloud or your own fog? 
Is God's cloud in your life moving away from you while, while you refuse to pack and move with it? And if you're struggling, the only thing I can tell you is stop. The only thing I can tell you is the cloud moves, go. Stop, the, go. God leads all men who truly acknowledge his son. And if you want to be led by God, we must acknowledge his son. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I uh, thank you that, uh, that the trappings of this world sometimes become pale when we stand next to you. Father, I thank you uh, for humor in putting my underwear on backwards this morning. Father, I thank you that whether it's on forward or backwards, uh, you are a good God. And whether I'm a fool or a smart person, I'm no good unless I'm leading. Excuse me that I'm following your leading. Father, I thank you so much um, for the people here under the sound of my voice. That, that your word is trustworthy, that it's enduring, that it's good, that it is sufficient. And that as a result of your son, through the power of your spirit, um, we have you. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.